This evening we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, please. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to read the opening 12 verses of this chapter together. As you turn there, find your place in Scripture and get the Word of God open before you on your lap. And let's cast our eyes down and follow the reading of Scripture. But as you turn there, I'd like to welcome all to the house of God this evening. For those who are visiting, I know family members come home at this time of the year. And for those who are among the congregation, welcome you in the Savior's name. And for also who are watching online as well. And we trust that the Lord will draw near to us and that the hand of our God will be even upon us for good. So First Peter chapter 1, and we will commence reading at verse 1. So let's hear the word of the living God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. For in ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. But the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us did they, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. Amen. And we'll end our reading at verse 12. And let us look to the Lord as God's people joining together and focusing our minds, our hearts, entering into prayer, the one with the other, and asking the Lord to bless the preaching of His words. Let's just still ourselves as we come before the Lord. Our gracious God, our loving Father, we do thank and bless Thee for, uh, Lord, this blessed privilege to approach Thy throne of heavenly grace to come before thee in the name of the Lord Jesus. We thank thee, Lord, for this opportunity that you've already given to us to lift up his voice in praise and in song, to sing of his life, of his testimony, of his death, of his resurrection, yea, even of his coming again. We thank thee, Lord, for our Savior. And what theme can our tongues employ? Best theme but Christ. And we pray, O God, that as we come to the preaching of the Word, I pray, Lord, I stand as a candidate for the infilling of the Spirit. Oh, I greatly desire to preach 
with the hand of God upon me. Lord, not for my glory, for who or what am I? Lord, I am unworthy, and yet responsibility falls upon me. But I pray that your hand will be upon me, that I might be able, Lord, to exalt Jesus Christ in the preaching of the Word, in the Word that thou hast given. May it come with power to those who are present, Lord, to every heart, saint and sinner alike. And yet, Lord, we pray for the singling out of those who are not thine. We pray that the Holy Ghost will put the searchlight of eternity upon them, that even the omnipotent finger of God would rest heavy upon their heart. O God, that they will be very conscious of their guilty condition before thee, and that thou would move them, O God. Lord, surely they have sat at ease long enough. Shake them from their apathy. They are to sleep upon the lap of the wicked one as he lulls them into a Christless eternity. No care, no love for their soul. But we think of Christ, the one who loves sinners and gave himself for them. Oh, take away the veil of blindness that's upon their mind. And may they behold the beauty and the splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Draw near to us now. Help us, we beseech of thee. Glorify thy Son. For these things we pray in his name and with an eye to his everlasting praise and glory. Amen. In 1955, well-known soloist George Beverly Shea was returning across the Atlantic to the United States with his son, Ron. When he recognized another passenger upon the ship, the president of a New York recording company, while in conversation with a man who was not a Christian, George Beverly Shea got speaking about the things of God and how sinners receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Thrilled at the thought of the sinner's salvation, George Beverly Shea finished off by exclaiming, Oh, the wonder of it all! The executive, he quickly reached into his pocket and pulled out an envelope and a pen, and he wrote down some words, and he pushed it across to Beverly Shea across the table, and he said, Bev, that sounds like a song, the wonder of it all. That night as he retired to his cabin, George could not sleep, and his wife woke up to find him sitting at a small desk. Asking him what he was doing, he answered, I'm just writing a little song. And that song is entitled, The Wonder of It All. It comprises of two stanzas and a chorus. It goes like this. There's a wonder of sunset at evening. The wonder of sunrise I see, but the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loves me. There's a wonder of springtime and harvest, the sky, the stars, and the sun, but the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is a wonder that's just begun. The chorus, oh, the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me. Oh, the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me. Truly, there is a wonder in the natural world around us that has been created by the Lord. But there is a surpassing and a superlative wonder that thrilled the heart of George Beverly Shea, and that was the love of God for him. 
It was the wonder of salvation that gripped the heart of the Apostle Peter in the opening chapter of this epistle. Salvation, spiritual salvation, the rescue of the soul from sin and death and hell and Satan is the greatest theme of Scripture. There are many frivolous things that can occupy the mind, but the greatest thing that anyone can think about is salvation. But more than that, the greatest thing that can ever happen to anyone is the salvation of their soul. Peter here was writing to a persecuted and scattered uh, group of saints who were under the heavy trial of their faith. The reality of salvation was upon his heart. He mentions salvation in verse 5, but in the previous verses he already alluded to it under other terms. He mentions salvation again in verse 9 and then in verse 10. He wanted to bring before these believers in their difficulties the wonder of their salvation. They were living in a hostile world. They had been blamed for the burning of Rome, and persecution was building and mounting against them. Yet, no matter how difficult it was for them, no matter how severe the persecution, no matter how painful the trial, he calls his readers and us to remember the greatness of salvation. To do this, he expounds really the doctrine of salvation from verses 2 to 9. Then in verse 10, he refers back to that salvation, saying, of which salvation? And then he bookends verses 10 uh, to 12 with the mention of two groups, the prophets and the angels, who both were in awe at salvation. The prophets, they never received the promise. That is, Christ was not manifest in the flesh, in their lifetime, they always looked forward, and the holy angels, well, they never experienced salvation, yet both were in wonderment of it. Too often for the child of God, familiarity, it breeds contempt. We all know the doctrine. We all know the biblical facts concerning our salvation. But I tell you, saint and sinner alike, it is a story, it's a truth worth telling again. And tonight we're going to look at these verses 10 to 12 under the heading, The Wonder of Salvation. We sang about it there in that last hymn, The Wonder of It. Just to think that God loved me, we sang it there. And I wonder tonight, child of God, are you in awe, are you in wonder at God's salvation? What He has done for you. The first thing I want to bring to your attention tonight as we think about this wonder of salvation in these verses is the anticipation of Christ. The anticipation of Christ. Salvation through Jesus Christ is not new, nor is it a novel development. Not for us, not for Peter in his day. Rather, it is the fulfillment of what God had promised from the very beginning, immediately after the fall of man into sin, there in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God promised that a Redeemer would come, the seed of a woman, to bruise the serpent's head to save His people from their sin. It was Augustine who said the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, and it is the same gospel, the same glorious salvation, the same Christ that was revealed and spoken of since the beginning in both those testaments. 
As I said, the greatest thing that any soul can experience is salvation, and that is because our greatest need is the salvation of our souls. I ask you tonight, have you experienced salvation? There is nothing like it. It is beyond our human description. Paul, he spoke there of the unspeakable gift, eternal life, salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, a man known for making up words, words, pulling compound words together to form an expression that he might describe something to the church of Jesus Christ. And yet he says of salvation, of the gift of God, of eternal life, that it is unspeakable. And I ask you this evening at the outset, have you experienced what it is to be born again, to be saved? to be washed in the Redeemer's blood because it is the greatest thing that any can ever experience. You see, that is the greatest need of your soul, salvation. Man is guilty of sin, and because he is guilty, he is headed for eternal judgment to spend eternity in the torments of hell. And sinners, they desperately need to be rescued. They need to be saved. They need to be delivered. And sinners, they cannot save themselves. The Bible is absolutely clear on that. No works, no human endeavor, no deeds can save your own soul. But the message of the Bible is that though man cannot save himself, from eternal torment, God can and God will save the sinner on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, the promise of the Redeemer was something that was made known by God unto Adam. Adam being the first prophet, he evidently told his posterity of the way of God's salvation through the blood. How do we know that? Well, Abel, he came the way appointed by God and his offering was respected. God continued to progressively reveal through the prophets more and more about the person and the work of the Redeemer. And so from the beginning, there was among the people of God an anticipation for this promised one to appear, especially among the prophets, as Peter tells us here in this little portion. The prophets, well, they were God's spokesmen in the Old Testament proclaiming God's will and God's purpose to the people through the utterance of divinely inspired revelation. A prophet was one who would foretell future events. They were one who would exhort and reprove and threaten individuals or nations concerning divine judgments as the ambassador of God. The prophet, they spoke not their own thoughts, but what they received from God while retaining their own consciousness and personality. They were men that were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10, the Lord says, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. God spoke through His prophets. Amos informs us, surely the Lord will do nothing. But he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Prophetic utterances were the principal means by which God made his will known, especially his will to save through a Redeemer. Now, Peter says of the prophets in verse 10 that they prophesied. 
That word, it refers to the act of revealing something that is hidden. And God made known through the prophets the nature, the birth, the life, the suffering, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the reign, the return of His Son, Jesus Christ. Not a conservative estimate. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled by Christ. It's been calculated that if you were to take just 48 key Old Testament prophecies, the chances of someone fulfilling them by chance are 1 in 13 trillion. It is mathematically impossible that one person could fulfill all 300 prophecies by chance And yet, sinner, you still do not believe. There is one who has come in the fullness of time. There is one who is the Lord of history. He stepped into history. The secular historians testify of him, of a man called Jesus from Nazareth. It's historical fact that I'm speaking of tonight. And he has fulfilled, he has done those things that are spoken of by the prophets over 300 prophetic utterances fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And if it's 1 in 13 trillion for 48 of those to be fulfilled, what is it for 300? There is an enormous amount of proof and evidence that Jesus most certainly is the Christ. From Moses to Malachi, all those Old Testament prophets They had their gaze on salvation. They were, as it were, they were fascinated by the promise of it in the Redeemer. Oh yes, they received the gift of salvation by faith without ever seeing or fully understanding all that was involved in Christ's life, His death and His resurrection. They received the salvation without the full benefit of seeing the accomplishment of that. And that's the subject that gripped their attention. That's the subject that they were fascinated with, that they were in wonderment of. It filled them with awe. They spoke about it, yes. But Peter also tells us here in these verses, verse 10, that they inquired and they searched diligently into that matter. Now those are strong words. They are emphatic words. They allude to miners who who dig to the very bottom, who break through not only the earth, not only the dirt, but through the, the bedrock just to get to the iron core. So diligent were they in their search. These holy prophets, though inspired, they had an earnest desire to know to know more. And so they applied themselves to the means at hand. And what were the means at hand? The Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures or at least the Scriptures that they had. One man, he made this comment, being inspired did not make their industrious search needless. Notwithstanding their extraordinary assistance from God, they were obliged to make use of all the ordinary methods of improvement and wisdom and knowledge. Daniel was a man greatly beloved and inspired, yet he understand by books and study the number of the years. Don't despise the means, sinner, the preaching of the Word of God, because the Bible tells us it's the Scripture that makes us wise unto salvation. The prophets, they did not have the advantage that you and I have. 
with a leather bound completed canon. But what they had, they looked for Christ in those scriptures. And let me tell you this if you look, you'll find him there. He himself said, Search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, salvation, and they are they which testify of me. This book, from beginning to end, it speaks of Christ. The prophets with anticipation, they searched diligently. They looked into the matter of all the subjects that they could major on. Make inquiry about it. It was salvation through the Redeemer that caught a hold of their heart. They had an anticipation for the Christ of whom they were inspired to speak about. And may the greatness of it catch hold of your heart tonight, sinner. The wonder of salvation. The Christ of God coming into this world to save sinners from their sin. The anticipation of Christ. Secondly, this evening, the humiliation of Christ. Look at the end of verse 10 who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. In the verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. We'll end there for now. They prophesied of the, the grace that should come unto you. Christ has already been mentioned at the start of this meeting. He is a personification. He is a manifestation of the grace of God. Turn back to that portion that we read there in Titus. Titus chapter 2 and the verse 11. Titus chapter 2 and the verse 11. And we read there, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And the Reverend Greers are already alluded to it. That word appears speaks of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Down in the verses 13 and 14, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Past tense again, it goes into that. Who gave himself that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. In His grace, and to remind you, the grace of God is His favor to those who are undeserving and undeserving. In His grace, He sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Christ is the manifestation, the personification of the grace of God to unworthy, undeserving, ill-deserving sinners. How do sinners know that God loves them? Christ is the answer. He's the answer. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, Christ coming into the world, and all that entailed. It is the grace of God. And it's what theologians refer to as the state of His humiliation. God, whom we have offended, whom you have offended, make it personal tonight. I'm speaking to you, sinner. I'm not here for the good of my own health. It drains me of my health. I'm not here for the fame of my name. My name is nothing. I am a nobody. I'm here preaching and speaking to you directly tonight, sinner. God whom you have offended, who would have been perfectly righteous in passing us all by and leaving us to our just condemnation, 
Out of infinite and sovereign grace, He sent His Son. He purposed to save some. Oh, that is a wonder in itself that God would save any. That He would save any. But how He would do this is an absolutely another thing. The way in which He would secure the sinner's salvation by sending His Son in order that He would become man, that He might accomplish redemption, fulfilling all righteousness, and by dying an atoning death, surely that elevates the wonder of salvation to a completely another level. Not only that He would save any, but the manner in which He would save our souls. Oh, the greatness of salvation. For God the Son to step out of eternity and into time and take to Himself a true humanity to submit Himself under a law which He had given and to give obedience to that law. And to give His life as an offering for sin. This is what God has done for sinners. Grace in Christ came unto us. Read in John chapter 1 verse 17, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now that does not mean that God was not gracious before the coming of Christ. In the context there in John chapter 1 verse 17, the context is speaking about the old and the the new dispensations of the administration of God's covenant. God has always been gracious. He has made Himself known unto His people as being a gracious God. He spoke to Moses, Exodus chapter 34, and the verse 6, He revealed Himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. The psalmist wrote, Psalm 116, in the verse number 5, Gracious is the Lord and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. To think that there's no grace in the Old Testament is a terrible error. An error which some make. They think it's all law, that law was the means of salvation. But no, no, grace. Grace. For by grace are ye saved through faith. God is gracious and sinner. That's exactly what you need. You need His grace. What a wonderful word grace is. One man said the word grace, it's bigger, a bigger word than salvation. Salvation speaks about the act of saving. Grace speaks about the motive. And it embraces all of God's motive behind His saving work. If you will be saved, sinner, it will be by grace. Stop trying. Stop thinking. And somehow you will have merit or can gain merit with God. You have none, and you must be saved by grace. Now look at verse 11 with me, please, back in 1 Peter chapter 1. The prophets made search to know, as it says there in verse 1, what or what manner of time. Now what does that mean? When it says there what or what manner of time, what were they trying to search out? Well, basically, who and when? Who and when? If you were an Old Testament prophet and you had all this incredible information, wouldn't you be wondering who is the Messiah? 
Who will it be? Isn't that what John the Baptist wanted to know? Turn to Matthew chapter 11, please. Matthew chapter 11. And there's John the Baptist, the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets. And they all wanted to know who the Messiah was. And, well, John, he's no different. Matthew chapter 11 and the verse number 2, it tells us, Now when John had heard in the prison the words of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, that's unto Christ, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? The disciples of John, they came to, to Jesus Christ and well, he basically asked, are you the anticipated one, or shall we look for another? And Christ told John's disciples, you go back to him, and you tell John what you have saw. And what did they see? Well, they saw the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies in Jesus concerning the Christ. He's the one. He is the one. There is no other, see. He's the deliverer. He's uh, the Savior. And if you want to be a partaker of this wonderful salvation, then it is to Him you must look, for neither is there salvation in any other. But the prophets say they also made a diligent search, not only the who, we could take that word what and, and have it as a who, searching who or, or what manner of time. They, they searched into when He would come. They knew that this Messiah, this this one who would be prophet, priest, and king must appear in time on earth. And they wanted to know the age. They wanted to know the, the time period, what it would be like. They wanted to know the season and this earth's history when he would appear. Now, they did not see that time fulfilled. But we live in an age when it has been. We thought about last, that last Sunday evening when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son. Christ has come, and He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Verse 11 goes on to say, The Spirit of Christ which is in them did signify, when it testified beforehand, the sufferings of Christ. The prophets, under the inspiration of God, they knew that not only would Christ come, not only would He come to this earth, not only would He step into history, but they knew that when He would come, He would come to suffer. The verse speaks of sufferings, plural. The prophecies of the prophets, by and large, can be divided into two categories, the sufferings of Christ and the glory of Christ. Here we're thinking of the humiliation of Christ to which the sufferings belong. There are many examples of prophetic utterances concerning the sufferings of the Messiah. We could think of Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, great chapters of the suffering of Christ. Daniel chapter 9, we read there that the Messiah would be cut off. Zechariah chapter 12, that he would be pierced. Zechariah chapter 13, that a sword of divine justice would be lifted up and he would be smitten by it. The New Testament confirms that the old foretold of his sufferings. Peter, he said in Acts chapter 3 and verse 18, but those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and the verse 3 says there, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How, sorry, verse chapter 15, verse 3. How that Christ died for our sins, heirs of sufferings, according to the Scriptures. 
Christ himself mentioned that the prophets spoke of his sufferings before his crucifixion. Matthew chapter 26, verse 22. The Son of Man goeth, goeth unto his sufferings as it is written of him. And then after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, Luke chapter 24 and verse 25. O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things? Christ came to suffer for sin. Sin, your sin, could not be atoned for by a good example, but by sufferings, by death, by bloodshedding. You must be careful not to confine the sufferings of Christ simply to the cross or the hours preceding it. The whole of Christ's life was a life of suffering from the manger to the cross. There was no one who suffered in body and soul of Christ. His penury. His obscurity, his temptations, his rejection, his denial, his betrayal, his scourgings, his mockings, his beatings, his shame, his crucifixion, his burial. He suffered in order that sinners might not suffer eternally. For sin demands a penalty of suffering. In his humiliation, he came so low in order that he would lift up those who are sunk deep down in their sin. When I could not come to where he was, he, the Son of God, came to me. The wonder of salvation. They prophesied of the grace that should come. Well, thirdly, we have and a little more briefly, the exaltation of Christ, the anticipation of Christ, the humiliation of Christ. We have the exaltation of Christ, the Spirit of God, also revealed unto the prophets the glory that should follow. Now, we lose a little something here in the translation, for the Greek word glory is actually in the plural. It's glories. And this refers to the various aspects of Christ's glorification. That includes His resurrection, His ascension, His session to Father's right hand, and His return again. And each one of those events is a wonder in themselves. A true man rose from the dead. One who is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh has ascended into the very courts of heaven, into the realms unseen, to sit at God's right hand. There is one in glory, the God-man, and he rules there for his people, and someday every eye shall see him and behold the wonder of him coming again with all his holy angels. His glory is the reward of his sufferings. Yes, he had to suffer, but having suffered and finished the work, death has no more power over him. It was not possible to, for him to remain in the tomb. He must needs come forth to his glory, to the glory that was foretold by the prophets. Concerning him, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? What glory? Well, the glory of seeing his people delivered from their sins. Isaiah, he prophesied in that great chapter of suffering concerning that uh, matter. 
It says there that he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. His people coming unto him for salvation, it is a glory, a glory to the grace of God. They also spoke of the glory of his kingdom, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. And there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Christ is now on the throne. Christ is enthroned in glory. The prophets, they have now beheld his glory. They are now as much filled with wonder at the sight of it as they were at the thought of it. What a wonder it will be to behold it. What does that all what does this all mean for you, sinner? It's a gospel service. What does the exaltation of Christ mean for you, sinner, tonight? Well, two things very briefly. Firstly, all that was required for man's salvation. Christ has done. If that was not the case, he would never have entered into his glory. The work is done. Rest your soul there, sinner. It's a perfect work. It's a complete work. It's a work you can rest your soul on for all eternity. But also, secondly, someday all will stand before him. Someday you will find yourself face to face with the living Christ. You're dealing with a living Christ. He has entered into His glory. And someday you'll stand before Him. Therefore, now is the time to make preparation. Now is the time to repent and trust in Him. That's what the exaltation of Christ should speak to you. The work is done. And I am dealing with a living Christ. So we have thought about the anticipation of Christ and the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. Finally tonight, the proclamation of Christ. Look at verse 12. Unto whom, this is speaking of the prophets, unto the prophets it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. We're not to think here that the prophets, they derive no benefit from the prophecies they were given. They did. But we learn here that the fullness of the blessing and the ministry of them comes to us now that Christ has fulfilled all that was predicted of Him. We know the who of salvation and we know the when of salvation. The only thing left for us now to do as the people of God is proclaim the good news to sinners who are in need. Christ is the salvation of His people, and now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation, sinner. That is what the early church did. They preached the gospel, listen, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Herein is another wonder of the sinner's salvation. The Holy Ghost comes upon the preaching of the Word and applies it with power to the soul, convicting them of their sin and convincing them of the claims of Jesus Christ. And when God ordained this means by which sinners will be saved, He did not commit the message. He did not entrust it unto the holy angels. 
but he gave it unto men, weak, poor, base individuals of this world, that he might send them forth to proclaim the gospel, that his church might be built, that his kingdom might be extended. Through the preaching and their announcing and their proclaiming and the sharing of the good news, sinners are saved. As I said, Christ's kingdom is extended and the church is built. It wasn't and won't be built by signs and wonders. It wasn't built and won't be built with entertainment. It wasn't built and won't be built by programs, but by the Spirit of Christ through the preaching of the gospel. That's what's left for us to do. Christ has come. We have the full benefit of the blessing and the ministry of all those prophecies that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now it's up for you and me as God's children to go and tell. To go and tell to the natural man, to the worldly man, to the carnal man, what I am doing now, preaching, proclaiming, to telling you about Jesus Christ. It's absolute foolishness, but this is God's ordained way. What a wonder. Man thinks it's madness down the street, preaching in the open air. That man's lost his mind, but here's the wonder of it. This is how Christ gathers in the elect for whom he died. They must, they needs, they will hear the gospel proclaimed. Faith, saving faith that comes by the hearing of God's word. Now, you have maybe heard the word a thousand times. And there's some in here, and you've heard it many a time. Oh, that the Holy Ghost would fall upon this house tonight. As it fell upon the house of Cornelius and smash your hard heart. That's the only way I can describe it. You're hard in your sin. Your eyes are blinded by the God of this world. The veil needs to be taken away, not by the preacher, but by the Holy Ghost, that you might see the beauty of Christ and behold the wonder, the greatness of salvation. All to you, it's something you can, well, you can take or leave. And if you're not saved, well, I tell you now, you've left it. You've never received it. You've never taken it. You've never called for salvation. Of all the themes that men can preach and speak about, the greatest and the most glorious, it is salvation. Salvation through Christ was the wonder of the prophets. But as I close, it is the wonder of the holy angels. Look at the end of verse 12. It tells us there which things, what things, salvation. That's what Peter's been talking about and how it's all came about, how Christ has accomplished it, which things the angels desire to look into. The holy angels, they never sinned. Consequently, they needed no atonement. Or forgiveness. They, they never were defiled and therefore they needed not to be washed. And yet even though they have not experienced these things, they gaze upon it with holy wonder. There was no salvation for their counterparts who sinned along with Satan, but for rebellious man, one lower than the angels, God the Son took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the nature, uh, on him the seed of Abraham. They inquire into that. 
It must astound him that God would do that for his creatures who sinned against him. Is it any wonder that the angels of heaven, well, they left heaven's glory to fill the skies in Bethlehem in order to sing glory to God in the highest? He before whom they veiled their faces veiled himself in our humanity in order that he might suffer for us. And there they are, the empty heaven's courts, to come to Bethlehem to behold this wonder. And they gaze into it, and they, they are in awe at it. And dear friend, I was thinking before I come out, there's pulpits, and they're passionless in their preaching of the wonder of this great salvation. Oh, child of God, may they all come upon our heart. Are you not in awe, dear friend, of what Christ has done? Does it not fill your heart with wonder? Oh, the wonder of wonders, how could it be that God became flesh and was given for me? The Almighty, He came down. He walked among men. The wonder of wonders, Jesus died for my sin. Oh, the Scripture, it describes it as so great salvation, and so it is, sinner. Oh, receive it tonight, embrace it tonight. Rest on Jesus Christ, the exalted one. He's came low, but He's ascended on high, and He's coming again. The second appearing. And the saints will look for that appearing without sin unto salvation, when they will know the fullness of redemption in their bodies, their soul being now redeemed. I cannot describe the wonder of it. The wonder of it all, as George Beverly Shea penned in 1955, just to think that God loved me child of God, that He loved you. Young people, does it grip your heart? Does it give you a passion? Does it cause you holy awe? Does it cause these prophets and these angels, these three little verses, their, their bookend with these two groups of people, the prophets and the angels. The prophets not having received the promises, the angels having never experienced, and yet you and I will receive the promises. Christ has come. Christ has done the work. We have experienced. May it grip our hearts. May our hearts be filled with awe and wonder. At this time of the year, as we think what the Son of God has done for us. Sinner, may God take the veil away from your eyes and from your mind that you might behold and know and experience the wonder of God's salvation. Do not delay any longer, but come tonight and receive the salvation of your soul. May the Lord bless His Word to our hearts for His own name's sake. Let's still ourselves before Him. As always, as servants of the Lord, we make ourselves available to speak with you, to counsel you if you need help. Oh, but that the Lord would take away the blindness that shrouds your soul, 
that you might see the beauty of Christ. Our God and our Father, we thank thee, Lord, for thy word. And we pray as thy people that thy salvation, so great salvation, would grip and thrill our hearts as it did the holy prophets and as it does the holy angels. Lord, help us to make inquiry and diligent search, making use of the means, the book of God. Help us, O God, as thy people, even at this time of the year, with all the busyness, with all the things that would clamor for our attention, just to take a little moment to stop, to stand back, and to meditate upon the wonder of it all. We thank Thee for Thy Son. We are so unworthy, and yet Thou hast loved us with an everlasting love. We thank Thee for Christ. We love Him. Oh, for grace to love Him more. We pray for those who sit here tonight and are not saved. Oh, that they would not walk out. That they would not spurn your offer of salvation as it is in Jesus Christ. Oh, God, it is thy work. May the Holy Ghost come, apply. Apply redemption that has been accomplished. Oh, Lord, may thy hand be upon us for good. And as we part and go our separate ways, for thy people may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be our portion this night and forevermore until we meet and gather round the feet of our blessed Savior. Watch over us. Bless thy word. This we ask in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.